Our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. This is Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast, where we tell stories about the contribution Iowans and the state of Iowa has made to advance the civil rights movement. Past stories are being told, present actions will be highlighted, and preparation for the future will be discussed. Here is your host, Eric Nyange. Welcome to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. My guest today is David Holm Grant, and our conversation today is going to be on the Iowa Underground Railroad. Dave is a researcher and historian at the Iowa Historical Society in Des Moines, Iowa. And he has been working on the Iowa Underground Railroad project since 2011. He holds a bachelor degree in history from Drake University, bachelor of science in elementary education from Iowa State, master's in history from Iowa State, and a master's in educational administration from University of North Texas. Dave wrote numerous articles on Iowa history, and a book called Abolitionists and Free Thinkers with the Underground Railroad in Clinton County, Iowa. It is my pleasure to welcome him to the show today. Dave, welcome to the show, man, and welcome to Mason City. Well, thank you for having me. I'm yeah, glad to the, be here. The Underground Railroad. When did slavery start in America? Almost at the beginning. First item that we actually know, Jamestown was the first continuing settlement. In, in North America by the British, yeah. started in 1607. In 1619, this is even a year before the Pilgrims came to the Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts, uh, in 1619, a Dutch ship shows up in Jamestown and had a load of Africans that were mm. sold. Now, the question is, you have to define what we mean by slavery, because from the first so-called slaves, brought into the colonies in 1619 and through most of the rest of that century. Blacks who were brought in actually had some rights. Meanwhile, you had a lot of white indentured servants that were, just because of horrific problems in England, they would literally sell themselves into kind of a form of temporary slavery. They would Mm. come over here as an indentured servant. They were basically subject to the same abuse by... Their owner. Their owner or master. Or yeah. I think master is maybe a better word, but yeah. temporary owner. And it was only gradually over time that you began to see some differences in the treatment of white indentured servants and black. essentially black indentured servants. And of course, one of those is that one of the primary differences was that white indentured servants, it was usually for a period of years. It could be anywhere from two years to 15 years of service yeah. to a white farmer, plantation owner, merchant, you name it. Whereas with Africans, basically it was a life sentence. That'd be the one thing that would distinguish it. And even the early colonies, they gradually evolved their laws about slavery. Who was a slave? Who was not? Do slaves stay with their mother's family, with their father's family? These types of things. Uh, What are slave owners allowed to do to punish slaves? that are black, indentured servants that are white. Those differentiations became more and more clear toward the end of the 1600s and the early 1700s. By the beginning of the 1700s, at that point, you could say pretty much for certain that in all the colonies, African Americans were indeed slaves, unless they had been emancipated by their owners. Wow. First time when I heard the word underground railroad, I was thinking about train underground. That was my idea. So what is the definition of the Underground Railroad back then? Well, first of all, I think your, your original vision is what a lot of people have, unless they have some previous experience in school or somewhere else 
learning about. I've been actually uh, surprised at the number of people, just friends and acquaintances, who I will tell them that I'm working on this project to study the Underground Railroad in Iowa called the Iowa Freedom Trail Project. And it's surprising the number of people I run into who they know something about the Underground Railroad. But, of course, obviously, it was neither underground nor a railroad. Mm. It was a network of people who were hostile to slavery and everything having to do with the institution who were trying to help fugitive slaves escape from their masters. And at least in Iowa, the general purpose was to take these fugitive slaves who came across our state lines, mostly from Missouri and from Kansas uh, territory, uh, into Iowa to relay them basically from one station to the next. Uh, Typically, uh, slaves coming up uh, into Iowa would stay at one station for a night or maybe a couple of nights, and then either the station agent or another person who's called a conductor would actually take them to the next station. A typical journey would be overnight. It would be somewhere in the range of 8 to 15 miles. And, of course, they're not going on open roads that are heavily traveled. They're going across the backcountry. They're crossing people's farms. They're going through pastures and Mm. meadows. They're going along riverbeds. Because, of course, what was happening here, particularly not so much with the fugitive slaves, but with the conductors, as well as station agents, they were in open violation of federal law. There were two fugitive slaves acts. Mm -hmm. One was in 1793. That was passed to begin with, just simply because the Constitution did not directly address the issue of yeah. fugitive slaves. It, yeah. it, it, uh, it addressed other issues, mm-hmm. uh, like, the, like what they call the, the three-fifths rule for representation for yeah. states that had slaves. And there was also a provision in the Constitution that the slave trade, there could be no legislation against slave trade from that point in 1787 until January 1st of 1808, so 20 years' time. That's the only thing that's in the Constitution addressing slavery. But, of course, uh, slaves, even back at that time, unhappy with their situation in life and slavery, tried to escape. And so that was the reason for the law of 1793. This is when Washington was president. Mm. And, of course, he signed the law. He was a slaveholder himself, although compared to a lot of the slaveholders, <laughs> Washington had some very liberal views. He hated the institution. He felt locked into it, as some of our other presidents. Mm. Jefferson felt locked into it. James Madison felt locked into it. How do we get out of this? But the point is uh, that the 1793 Act required that fugitive slaves be caught and be returned to their masters. masters yeah. the, the next one didn't come until 1850. And, of course, yeah. a lot of water went over the dam during all those years, having to do with the rise of the anti-slavery movement, the rise of mm. abolitionism during the early uh, 19th century. But the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was passed. It was a much more direct law. Mm. It required that any citizen who has a fugitive slave must turn them over to federal authorities or return them directly to the master who owned them. So they strengthened the 1793 Yeah, it was, a, it was a strengthening, yes. And, of course, after 1850, you saw a lot more federal marshals, particularly under Presidents Pierce and Buchanan, coming into the states. We had federal marshals here in Iowa, even in the 1850s, uh, trying to either capture fugitive slaves or work with people who would help find them. A lot of times they were just private slave catchers who would come up, say, from Missouri. Uh, they could be members of the family who owned the slaves. They could be friends. They could be somebody who was hired to capture fugitive slaves. And so, according to the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, if you were assisting fugitive slaves in any way, if you were holding them in their home, if you were even giving them food and then trying to send them on, you were in violation of that law. And you could be sentenced to prison, you could be given stiff fines, or both. 
And so the people who were involved, they knew that they were running some risks. That's why it had to be so secret. And that's a part of the reason for the name Underground Railroad. So they were violating federal law. Directly. Directly. It's surprising how few Underground Railroad agents in Iowa are actually caught and prosecuted. Very few. The, the networks seem to work very well, but the few who were caught suffered some consequences. Yeah. We're not talking about death penalty, but we are talking about jail or fine. And is, is that why it's so hard for you, historian, to find a lot of information on the Underground Railroad? Right. We've, see, we've identified a lot of the station agents, a lot of the conductors, a lot of the general agents, and all the but fugitive slaves, well, a lot of them, their names changed during their lives. And I'll give you an example. A man named John Ross Miller. His original name was Graves because his master was named. When he escaped and came into Iowa, he went in the area around Newton, and uh, a man, Scherer, hired him to do work in the Newton area. So he, when he went into the, into the service during the Civil War, it was the 1st Iowa African-American Infantry Regiment, which later became the U.S. 60th Colored Troop. He gave his name as Scherer. After the Civil War, uh, he found out his family was down in Missouri, so he went down to retrieve them and bring them back to Iowa. He found out his father had taken the name Miller, so he changed his name to Miller. So the name that he's known by now is John Ross Miller. But from a historian's viewpoint, 150 years later, slaves, fugitive slaves, ex-slaves, freedmen, if you think in terms of genealogical research, they're among the most difficult people in America to trace. Mm. It can be done, but you have to be an extremely skilled genealogist to do, to do that. Just because of the name changing constantly. Right. And that doesn't happen with all slaves. Yeah. A lot of slaves came through Iowa. We know the names of only a handful of them. We suspect that there were hundreds, if not thousands, of fugitive slaves who came through Iowa from the 1840s on through to the end of the Civil War in 1865. But what were their names? Most yeah. of their names are lost to history. Yeah. And it was the name changing, because most of them, they were changing their name to reflect their masters. Usually. Was that part of identify slaves, since the slaves did not have identification themselves? You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I, I think probably for a number of reasons, but I think the main reason is they simply took the name, the last name of their master. Okay. And, of course, that was probably imposed on them by the master to start with. That's, I mean, that's that was part I of the culture, thinking. too. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. that's what I was thinking, that you change your name to your master, so when you're out and about, people will ask who you belong to. Oh, absolutely, so and particularly in the southern states. Yeah, identify yeah. you right. with, with your master. Right. Said, okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, if you were a slave in any one of the slave states, you couldn't hardly travel unless you had papers from your yeah. master. And even then, you had these opportunists who— you know, white guys who they want to make a quick profit, mm -hmm. they'll come up to, it's not not necessarily even a fugitive slave, but to a slave who has proper papers to send him from plantation A to plantation B. It could be to visit, it could be to pick some tools up and come back. Even if they had papers, if there was an quote-unquote enterprising white man there, mm -hmm. thought, I can make a quick buck, he could easily kidnap that guy, yeah. take his papers away from him. Keep in mind, most of those slaves didn't know how to read or write. So they didn't even know. They knew basically what was on the paper. Mm -hmm. But once the paper's taken away. It's a done deal. It's it, a done deal. That was another controversial Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. That There was a lot of free slaves that were ended up getting right. captured and thrown right. into slavery, even right. though they were not and, slaves. Yeah. Uh, if you remember the film about Simon Northrop. Was that 12 Years of Slaves? Yeah, no. that's okay, right. Okay, yeah, okay, that, yeah. that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His story was a little bit different because he was a free black, and he was kidnapped mm -hmm. in New York and taken yeah. down south, and, and twelve had... years in slavery. And there was nothing he could do about it. When did the Underground Railroad start in general? In general, that, that's a tough one. Um, mm. There were always escaping slaves. I mean, yeah. you go back to colonial days, back to the sixteen hundreds, you would have slaves trying to escape. There's that natural quest for freedom. For freedom, the people have. 
I don't know if there was anything really organized. There may have been things organized before the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, but frankly, I don't know. I'm not sure anybody knows. Okay, so we probably don't even know when did it start in Iowa. All I can do is give you a general time. One of the people we'll be talking about is Henderson Llewellyn, who his, his house in Salem, Iowa, is now on the National Register. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was in Iowa in the 1840s. In fact, he left yeah. Iowa to go out to Oregon in 1847. But he was an underground station agent that early. In Iowa, the early settlers in Iowa mostly came from the Upper South. And that was reflected in the fact that our early governors in Iowa were Democrats. Mm. And they were, they were not hostile to slavery. Several things were happening in the 1850s began to change the nature of the situation. First of all, you have a lot more immigration into Iowa. And immigration began to shift from the southern states to the middle Atlantic states and particularly to New York, Pennsylvania, and the New England states. And so what you see over a period of not too many years, a very quick increase in population in Iowa during the 1850s, but the bulk of it coming from the North and from New England. So you get much more of the anti-slavery attitudes. And then, of course, the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850 itself helped to stimulate Underground Railroad activity. The thing that really got it going was Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, because what that was threatening to do, and it was passed by Congress, was to, in essence, make slavery legal everywhere in the United States. Before that point, going back to the Missouri Compromise, you know, you had the Mason-Dixon line drawn in 1820, allowing Missouri to come in as a slave state, and Maine would come in as a free state. And after that, all territories wanted to come in the Union. If they were north of the Mason-Dixon line, 36 degrees, 30 minutes, they yeah. would come in as free states. Every territory south of the Mason-Dixon line would come in as a slave state. When Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois introduced the Kansas-Nebraska Act early 1854, it would organize the Kansas and Nebraska territories together, which means that Nebraska, far north of Mason-Dixon, and even Kansas, would be organized as possibly being slave territories. And that set off a race between pro-slavery settlers coming into Kansas and uh, anti-slavery settlers coming from New England and New York and Pennsylvania, crossing Iowa, by the way, and into Kansas, they were in a race to try to get the majority so when Kansas applied for statehood, it would come in as a free state. Mm. And you didn't have to necessarily be an abolitionist or even strongly anti-slavery to dislike the Kansas-Nebraska Act mm. because it was, in fact, opening slavery to all new states all coming in, states whether they were in. north or south of the Mason-Dixon law. And then comes the Dred Scott case in 1857. The mm. Supreme Court itself overwhelmingly supported slave interests. In Iowa, how did the Underground Railroad work? Because most slaves were running from Missouri. Right. Uh, well, and, and from Kansas. Uh, very few slaves came up from Kansas on their own. It was usually uh, Underground Railroad agents. Of course, the famous one is John Brown, mm-hmm. uh, who eventually was hanged for the insurrection at Harper's Ferry in Virginia yeah. late in 1859. He made several uh, trips across Iowa and got to know numbers of our Underground Railroad agents here in Iowa and worked with them. Yeah. when he was crossing Iowa. But uh, Missouri, being uh, immediately adjacent to Iowa, you'd yeah. have slaves that would escape, particularly the northern parts of the state. If the further south you go, the slaves themselves understood enough of geography to know that the further south they were, the more difficult it would be to get into Iowa. And there wouldn't be very many people in Missouri who would yeah. be willing to help them. Mm-hmm. Because Missouri sentiment was, I would say, significantly more pro-slavery than it was in Iowa. If they could make it into Iowa... Through their own communication networks, fugitive slaves kind of knew where to go and where there would be people who would be sympathetic to them and would give them help. The point of entry for the fugitive slaves 
was actually in a lot of places. The main areas would be in extreme southeast Iowa, if you can picture the confluence of the Des Moines River with the Mississippi, mm. okay, and all the counties along the Mississippi itself. But those that are close to that southeast corner of Iowa, where Iowa, Missouri, and Illinois meet, mm. that's where a lot of fugitive slaves would come up. The other large group would be those that were being brought up by Underground Railroad agents through the Kansas Territory. They would usually come up into what's now the state of Nebraska, and then they would cross the Missouri River into Iowa, where Fremont County is. Fremont County is an extreme southwest corner of the state, and Mills County, the one just north of it. There was a lot of activity right there. You know what fascinated me the most, Dave, is slaves did not know how to read and write. Right. How did they know where to go? How do you even know how to navigate through those? I think probably for the vast majority of slaves, they didn't because the vast majority never tried to escape. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were they were so deep in despair from their life situation, they saw it as hopeless. But the few who did, they had their own informal communications networks. Uh, keep in mind that African Americans, they developed a lot of their own culture in America. Mm-hmm. Even during slavery, they would have private meetings for their own religious services. They would have their private communications for all kinds of things, such as, you know, how many miles do I go? What creek or river do I follow? Whose pasture do I go through to get from point A to point B to try to get up to Iowa, a free state? Yeah. Wow. I cannot wrap my mind around it. It is difficult to do that, isn't it? I mean, in the day and age we live in, it's, it's, it's so difficult to even... Really, really try to really understand the situation of 150 years ago. Yeah, and they were walking, I'm assuming, most of them. I would assume most of them were walking. Yeah, and that's why uh, if a slave was on on a farm or in a small town in northern Missouri, it's much easier than if you're down in southern Missouri or even central Missouri. Yeah. So, Oh, and I was going to mention also the main points of entry, like I said, were in southeast Iowa, southwest Iowa, but we also had— Fugitive slaves who would come up directly across the Missouri state line into Iowa all the way across. And those we refer to as spur lines, like a spur line on a railroad. Okay. If you looked at a map, you would see the main track of the of Underground Railroad coming from southwest Iowa like through Fremont and Mills County. It would uh, Most of the traffic would go up to um, Cass County at a town called Lewis, where the Hitchcock house is still there today. He, mm. uh, George B. Hitchcock was an okay. Underground Railroad uh, agent. And then most of them would travel eastward toward Des Moines. Someone would actually travel eastward in a line south of Des Moines, kind of going through Winterset, Indianola, and then would come up to the Des Moines area and then proceed east to places like Mitchellville, Newton, Grinnell, mm-hmm. uh, named for Josiah B. Grinnell, yeah. who was a leading abolitionist uh, at that time. And then it points further east to Iowa City and then to the Quaker communities in Cedar County, where Herbert Hoover was from. But of course, Herbert Hoover was born after the Civil War. But the, the Quaker communities, particularly of West Branch, where Hoover was from, and Springdale, another community very close by, was very, very active in the Underground Road. They worked very intensely with John Brown mm-hmm. on at least several of his trips through there. Mm-hmm. A lot of Underground Road agents in that area. From there... The slaves would either go more or less directly east to Davenport and then cross over into Illinois. Some of them would go a little further north through Cedar County up into Clinton County. The ultimate land destination was to get across Illinois to Chicago. And in Chicago, right on Lake Michigan, there were Underground Railroad agents very active in Chicago who would use boats, load them on the boats, literally, in or near Chicago, and take them up Lake Michigan and take them to Canada. The reason for Canada is, of course, that Canada was part of the British Empire. And the British Empire outlawed slavery in 1833. That's 30 mm. years before the United States did it. We, we think of 
The United States is, is a very progressive nation, which is in many ways it is. But when America finally, finally abolished slavery in 1865, it was among the last nations in the world to do so. See, in the early 1830s was a time where you, you see a lot of growth of the Underground Railroad nationally, not so much in Iowa, because Iowa wasn't settled in yeah. the 1830s. But you saw it in the eastern states. And it was because of the fact that Canada was now slave-free, according to the law of the British Empire. Mm. But also, you see the beginnings of a very stirring abolitionist movement. You see William Lloyd Garrison mm -hmm. beginning to publish The Liberator yeah. in Boston. Yeah. And he was so radical, he, he actually advocated disunion. He wanted to get away from the southern slave states. He was in favor of secession <laughs> in a certain sense. And one of the people was a man living in Clinton, Iowa, who was very closely connected uh, with Garrison and other of the radical abolitionists, held very, very radical views. Mm -hmm. And he was, again, he was a station agent right in Clinton. Then you see the Nat Turner's Rebellion of Virginia, mm -hmm. which just scared the living daylights oh, out yeah. of basically all Southerners. Because the rebellion did include a group of slaves who actually killed white people in that local area, but that sent shockwaves through the whole South. Yeah. yeah. And then right after that, you see the, the beginnings of the American Anti-Slavery Society. So not at a political level, but at a cultural level in America, yeah. you see the beginnings of abolitionism getting more and more militant in the 1830s. It doesn't start to take political form until 1840 in the years. What, what do you think, general sense, how long was the walking distance, you think, generally? I have no way of calculating. You know, uh, that's really difficult to say. I would say it would probably be a wide range, though. You know, it depends on how good you were as a slave in eluding slave masters and... and slave and catchers. Slave catchers and yeah. other public officials. You know, how good were you at, at moving stealthily through wooded areas, through, mm. through uh, river valleys, through places where people just didn't go, you know? And, of course, you were subject to accident. Yeah. You know, there were wild animals who could attack and kill you. You know, there'd be swamps with uh, snakes yeah. uh, and other animals that uh, you would prefer not to be around. So you were, the further away you lived in Missouri from the state of Iowa, the, the, the higher was your risk of making it to freedom. But that didn't stop people from trying. And I'll say just in general, for slaves living in extreme northern Missouri, and they're a short distance from Iowa, it's much easier than if you're living, say, down around Jefferson City in the central part of the state, let alone the Ozarks. Yeah. You know, down in southern Missouri. I always wonder, with all that danger, how many slaves die through that process trying to get I don't freedom. think very many. Yeah. And uh, there are probably several reasons. Uh, first of all, slave was a very valuable property to slave owners. Mm -hmm. They would have to figure out other ways, including preventive measures. If a slave master since there was a problem on the plantation, he would just talk, talk to his slaves about, you know, I might be having to send you down south, which means I'm going to sell you down into Mississippi or Louisiana or someplace like that, where it would be almost hopeless Yeah, impossible to, to get out. Almost yeah. impossible. Yeah. So they, they took preventative measures to stop the slaves from doing that. What was the impact of John Brown with the Iowa Underground Railroad? It would be similar to his impact nationally. You know, he was very well known uh, for his activities, just simply because of his radicalism mm -hmm. and his ability to actually get fugitive slaves yeah. to freedom. Was he going from state to state trying to free slaves? How he, did he end up in Iowa? I, I, well, he ended up in Iowa because uh, after the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and this, mm. this, this race is on between pro-slavery and anti-slavery settlers getting into Kansas to influence a new state constitution for Kansas to be admitted as a state. Uh, that's when John Brown gets very active in Kansas, mm. And the logical direction for him to go is to stay away 
from slave states. Why take them from Kansas into Missouri? That's higher risk than taking them further up north into the Nebraska Territory, yeah. which is not very well settled, and then bring them into Iowa and across Iowa. And then, of course, take them into Illinois, which was another free state. How many underground railroad locations do we have standing right now in Iowa? Oh, standing? You know, yeah. the, the ones that are verified on the National Register, there are only four of them. I mentioned the, the Hitchcock House, George B. Hitchcock, in Lewis, Iowa, in Cass County. That's western Iowa, more or less directly west of Des Moines. Then there's the James Jordan House, which is right oh, in Westmoreland. During the time uh, that he was active with the Underground Railroad, slaves would be brought from points further west of Des Moines to his house. He would hide them. Sometimes they would be in his house. A lot of times, not have had accommodations for them. So he would just hide them out in the cornfield behind the house and then move them on. Oftentimes, those slaves would be brought directly through Des Moines. Not always, but sometimes directly through there. There was another man named John Teasdale who was active both in Des Moines and I, later he was in Johnson County, I want to say Iowa City. And they were both active, though. And John Brown himself, on some occasions, brought fugitive slaves right through downtown Des Moines. And there was a man named Isaac Brandt, who was a leading merchant and businessman in Des Moines, who lived in a house that's right in the Capitol Complex area. The house is no longer there. But John Brown actually made stops with his fugitive slaves. The address was 1204 Sycamore, which later was renamed Grand Avenue, which is one of the main east-west streets that go through the city. Uh, if you start from the, the from the Capitol building itself in Des Moines, go north across the street, used to be the old state historical building. Immediately east of that building are several parking lots. That's where his house was. And on one occasion, they would they would use a hand signal. Um, John Brown would be approaching uh, Brant's house, and Brant would go outside, and he would put his thumb and his forefinger on his ear. That was the signal to John Brown that I'm Isaac Brant. And then he would ask how many. Brown would hold up four fingers. Okay. That means he had four fugitive slaves with him. I would say at least two occasions where Brown brought the fugitive slaves right straight through the city yeah. and kept them at Brant's house for maybe a night or two and then went to other points east. Uh, there is also the Henderson Dwelling House, which is in Salem, Same. which is mm. in Henry County. Was he John Todd was the other one? John Todd. Todd. No, I, I couldn't ask Okay. Think of it. Yeah, John Todd, he... Got his college education at a place called Oberlin College in Ohio, which developed a reputation very early on in the anti-slavery movement of the 1830s of being probably the most abolitionist college in the United States. One of his, uh, his instructors was a man named uh, Charles Grandison Finney. Finney, over the years, uh, gained a national reputation, along with people like William Lloyd Garrison, as mm. leaders in the anti-slavery movement. John Todd studied under Finney. Mm. He comes out to Iowa, and there were numbers of other people who were educated at Oberlin that also came out to Iowa, and they went to the far southwest corner. Where I'm, again, I'm talking about Fremont County, and I'm talking about Mills County. They founded this little town called Civil Bend, which was in Fremont County. It was more or less directly across Missouri River from Nebraska City, which is on the Nebraska side. John Todd was a radical abolitionist. I mean, he, even though he was a minister, he had no qualms about uh, stocking firearms. Not so much for offensive measures, but for defensive measures. So that if you have problems with slave catchers, defend yourself. Mm -hmm. We're not we're not going to sit here and take it. Wow. You look at pictures of him, he looks like a very staid, uh, older gentleman. But this man had a lot of fire in him. And uh, mm. his house in Tabor uh, is still exists today, and it's on the National Register. Uh, he had an upstairs attic area, I believe it was. And that's where they kept the fugitive slaves. So anybody who's traveling in the area around Tabor, Tabor is kind of right on the county line between Fremont County and Mills County. Yeah. If you're interested at all, 
Stop and see Seven, the yeah. stop, stop and see the John Todd. Why do you think all these underground railroad activities in Iowa is not well known? I'm not sure that question can be answered, except I think possibly state this as a fact, but it's kind of a semi-opinion, <laughs> that um, historians since the Civil War have had a bias toward the eastern states. You know, Iowa and Minnesota and Wisconsin, Nebraska, frontier states. Uh, there was a general view, perhaps, that these states, because they were in the process of being settled, coming into statehood, were not part of the center of the action. Mm. And when you think about it, major battles in the Civil War, none in Iowa. Yeah. There was only there was only one tiny battle called the Battle of Athens, which was in August of 1861, and the only damage done was three cannonballs were fired from the Missouri side onto the Iowa side. One of the cannonballs landed in the riverbank on the Iowa side, and a second one hit the roof of a railroad station in a town called Croton on the other side of the river from Athens, and the third one hit a house. I toured that house maybe 10 years ago. They preserved the house. The cannonball went straight through the house, and so they preserved that hole in the house. And if you would go to the Athens battlefield, you notice that. And so I think there has been a bias among historians for some reason that I can't really put my finger on exactly. They've just ignored the fact of the existence of an underground railroad in this area of the country. Thanks for your time, Dave. Okay. I appreciate it. Well, that was Dave Holmgren with the Iowa Historical Society in Des Moines. Thank you for listening to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. Until next time, be safe.